And can I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans, chapter 8. And we're going to read from verse 18 to the end of this chapter. The Apostle Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that in all things, I beg your pardon, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God for these wonderful and inspiring words. It's lovely to be here. I think it's about 15 years since I was last here. Um, When I moved down south in 2000, uh, I then stopped my regular visits to Lum. And now it's 15 years now that I am restored in good health and strength back to God's own country, the northwest of England, living in Cheshire, uh, in obscurity, of course, um, but it's a delight to be back in Lum. And uh, I want to talk to you about this passage that we have just read, these words that I'm sure all of us agree are amongst the finest words, not only in the Bible, but in the whole of world literature. It's hard to beat these inspiring words of the Apostle Paul. Now, about 20-odd years ago, there used to be an advertisement in British commercial television. It was an advertisement for the Guardian newspaper. And it was a remarkable piece of um, advertising because within the space of 30 seconds, it managed to communicate a very significant message. The way it worked was like this. There was 30 seconds of television divided into three sections, each of 10 seconds. And in each of those 10 seconds, the advert showed you the same scene from a different angle. And so the first scene shows us a square in the city of London, as I remember it. And a young man is walking across the square. He's well-dressed, he's presentable, he's carrying a briefcase, and we imagine that he's a lawyer or a stockbroker or a banker on his way to work. Suddenly, another young man of a very different kind, a man with a shaven head, not an honorably bald head such as some people have, but a shaven head and large boots on his feet and his jeans rolled up to his knee, suddenly runs towards him and knocks him over. And there the scene ends. And we imagine we know what's going on. We think to ourselves, well, it's clear here that that skinhead, is what we used to call them, is attacking that respectable-looking worker, and he's trying to pinch his briefcase, and he's mugging him, basically. Then we see the same scene from a different angle. This time we're a little bit around, and we can see that behind the skinhead, a car draws up. And out of the front of the car, there step two beefy men in suits. And seemingly, as he notices them, the skinhead runs in the opposite direction and manages to knock the young man over in his flight. So now we change our interpretation. We say, no, what's happening here is that uh, those two men in the car are obviously members of the CID, or possibly they're members of the local mafia, and that young man is wanted by them, and he sees them coming, and he runs in the opposite direction, and he knocks the other young man over accidentally, not because he intends to, but because he happens to be in his way. That scene comes to an end. Now we see the same scene 
for a third time. This time we're up on high, we're on top of a building, and we're looking down upon the scene, and we see that above the young man with the briefcase, there is a crane, and from that crane, a load is suspended, and that load is in the process of slipping, and if it does slip, it will king, it will kill the young man outright. And now we realize what really is going on here. It's not that the skinhead is trying to mug him to pinch his briefcase. It's not that he's running away from the CID and knocks a man over in his flight. He sees the danger. He sees what is about to happen. And he runs towards the respectable-looking young man in order to push him out of the way, in order to save his life. And he does so at the very risk of his own life. And then there comes the caption. The Guardian gives you the right perspective (laughs) on things. And we repent of our feelings about young bald-headed men with big boots. And possibly we rush out in order to subscribe to The Guardian. Or possibly not. (laughs) I love that advertisement. Uh, Because it tells me so much within the space of 30 seconds. It tells us that how you interpret things, things that happen, things that you observe, things that you see, depends very much upon where you're standing. Our perspective on the events that happen around us is limited by where we happen to be in the picture. Most of the time, when we interpret the world around about us, we interpret it from our own perspective. And our own perspective can be a quite selfish perspective. How does this affect me? What will I get out of this? And that affects the way in which we interpret the surrounding world. But let's face it, the world in which we live is a pretty confusing place. Do you agree with me on that? Even in Lum, even in the Rossendale Valley... The world in which we live is a pretty confusing place. Most of the time, most of us don't know what's going on. Most of the time, we are dependent upon what the BBC or Sky or The Guardian or The Sunday Mirror or The Sun tell us. And we all know that much of the time, that just isn't true anyway. And even when it is true, it's only part of the truth that we are told. So how do we know? How do we know how to interpret, to distinguish between right and wrong, good and bad? How do we know also how to pray in a world which we can hardly understand ourselves? And it's also true about our own lives. Our own lives can be very confusing. Things happen to us. Stuff happens in life. It's not all good. Some of it's good. Some of it we like. But many things happen to us along the way that we would not choose for ourselves. If we were given the option, we would definitely not opt for this rather than that. And we wonder. We wonder if there's a plan. We wonder if there's a purpose. We wonder where God is sometimes in what happens to us. Actually, also, we have to admit that as time goes on, perhaps as we get older, perhaps as we get wiser, we're able to look back upon things that happen. And we're able to see that, okay, we did not want it, we did not like it, but it was the right thing to happen at that time of our lives. Rather like the cake, which fits in very beautifully at this point. There's the bitter as well as the sweet. And yet, 
in time we might see that even the bitter has a role to play in our lives. Perspective is everything. And what's helpful about this particular passage, or one of the many things that's helpful about this passage, is that it gives us perspective. It's rather as if in the New Testament there are various mountain peaks upon which we can stand. And when we stand on those mountain peaks and we look, we look at the world from that perspective, we get a bit more understanding as to what really is going on in our world. And here it is, Romans chapter 8. All things work for the good of those who love God. Everything can be made to serve God's purpose, even the things that we do not like. Now, a number of things I want to say, therefore, this morning about this passage. The first thing I want to say is this, that we live in a universe which really does have a purpose. There is an underlying purpose beneath everything that happens. There is an overarching plan or purpose that makes sense or will one day make sense of the things that happen in our world. And that makes us a little bit strange. I mean, I know we're strange anyway because here we are on a Sunday morning, we're in church when lots of other people are still in bed. And uh, we're strange, aren't we, that we, we come and do this. We come regularly to do this. What a strange people we are. But we're strange in other ways, you see. We're strange in that we as Christian people believe that life does have a meaning. And it seems to me that most people out there no longer believe that. And there are lots of voices that tell us that. They tell us it's a meaningless accident. This world is absurd. It doesn't mean anything. It just happens to be there. And nobody knows why or how it is there. That's what um, people like the Archbishop of Atheism, Richard Dawkins and his friends, tell us apparently on a regular basis. I think they must have a contract with the BBC or something. Or, or the BBC or Channel 4 or whatever. They, they seem to like this kind of thing. That uh, it is all meaningless. But the world isn't going anywhere. It doesn't come from anywhere. It just is. And there's no point in trying to make sense of it. Now, the problem with that is that actually human beings can't live without some kind of meaning in their lives. If we didn't have something to live for, we'd all just give up the ghost and die here and now. Everybody has to have hope of some kind because without hope, everything else dissolves into dust. And so what happens is that we make our own meaning. We manufacture meaning. And that's not a bad thing. We manufacture meaning in all kinds of ways. For most of us, I guess, it's our families. We love our families. We love our children. We love our grandchildren. And this gives us a feeling of satisfaction in life that at least our genes will survive. Why they need to survive is another matter altogether. But uh, we do get that feeling of satisfaction. Or other people find meaning in their career. Or a lot of people find meaning in a cause. They embrace a cause, whether it's saving the whale or about the environment or about social justice. And they make this the thing for which they live. We call them social justice warriors. 
That's what it's all about. Or other people, and I don't understand this at all, they choose a football team. (laughs) Now, I've got nothing against football, but I don't want to live for a football team. You know, there are people, when they die, they have their bodies cremated and they have their ashes scattered on the park at Old Trafford or wherever it may be. And that's what they live for. That's the whole raison d'etre. Um, one of my favorite television programs, um, which I occasionally catch sight of when I'm surfing through the channels, I've got lots of time to do that now because I'm retired. See. It's called Grand Designs. Does everybody, anybody watch Grand Designs? Fascinating program. It's been around for years. Uh, there are versions in Australia and America, and uh, it's a great export. And the idea is this, that you build something. You take something which is apparently impossible and you make something wonderful out of it. It may be an old chateau in the south of France. It may be an old defensive keep or fortress somewhere in the borderlands. It may be a strange place, a strange shaped plot of land in, in London or in one of the great cities. And you do something with it, something extraordinary, architecturally extraordinary. And uh, I don't know how the people have the patience to do this. I certainly don't have the DIY skills to do what some of them do. I don't know where they get their money from to do it. Uh, but they do it, and uh, we, we are introduced to the project. We follow it over a number of years, and, and we see this great thing that is done. I am full of admiration for what people achieve. And I can see why they do it. They want to make a difference. They want, they want there to be something in their history, their past, where they can say, I did that, and were it not for me, that would be different from the way it is. This building would not be there. I've done something significant. I've left my footprint in the sands of time. So you can understand, people get meaning and satisfaction. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with most of these things. I've got questions about the football teams, I have to say. Uh, We all do that. We all do that. We all have things to live for. What we might call subsidiary purposes. But the Christian has something beyond that. You see, there's a difference between me creating meaning for myself In other words, finding meaning in life and finding the meaning of life. Do you get the difference? And life is best when, in the Christian view, we find the meaning of life. And everything we do, all the other forms of meaning we create, serve that greater purpose. And what is that purpose? Well, it's expressed here in different ways and in many other different ways in the whole of Scripture. But in verse 21 of Romans 8, it says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is God's purpose, to set this whole creation, which currently is in bondage to death and decay, to set it free in order that it, along with you and me and all God's beloved, may share in an ultimate freedom in knowing and loving the glory of God. That's God's 
purpose. And it's pretty big. It's pretty amazing. Um, There's a, a Baptist minister in America. His name is Rick Warren. Anybody ever heard of Rick Warren? And uh, he's written a number of books. Now, some of the people I know, because I've been living in the academic world for some time, um, they don't like Rick Warren. They think he's too simplistic. Actually, the reason why they don't like him is because he sells millions of books, and they don't sell any. So that's why Rick Warren is not particularly popular in certain circles. But I like Rick Warren. Uh, he writes well, and he's got this book, um, The Purpose Driven Church, which some of you may have studied. He's got another called The Purpose Driven Life. He's got another called 40 Days of Purpose. You see a theme developing here, don't you? Purpose, purpose, purpose. And I think he's going to write one called The Purpose Driven Nation, which I think the United States probably needs at the moment. <laughs> Uh, so he, he writes these, but sells them in the millions. Anyway, I'd like to, I like, I like Rick Warren. I, there's a particular reason why I like Rick Warren. Ten years ago, I was at the Baptist World Alliance, uh, 100th year congress in Birmingham. Were you there at all, Richard? And, uh, there I was in this big, uh, arena after somebody had spoken and I was standing there minding my own business as I normally do, talking to somebody, I forget who it was now, and as I was standing there, this great big six foot six, 20 odd stone man bears down upon me, throws his arms around me, and says, Hi, Nigel. And then he walks off. So I said to the person I was with, Who was that? And they, that was Rick Warren. And ever since then, I've kind of felt mystically bonded to Rick Warren, <laughs> as if there's this kind of connection between us uh, through the ether. And, uh, but I, I like Rick Warren, but I'd like to beat him to writing another book, The Purpose Driven Universe. I can see it now, selling in the millions. The Purpose Driven... We, you see, we don't live in a meaningless world. We don't live in a world which has come from nowhere and is going nowhere. We live in a universe that has come from somewhere and is sustained by a gracious God for the ultimate purpose he has for this universe, which is to bring all things together under one head, even Jesus Christ, to heal it and to restore this fractured world back into that harmonious communion that God always intended and still intends. That's the world we live in. And you and I find meaning in our own lives, first of all, by aligning ourselves with the purpose of God, by recognizing that this is why we are here, this is why we live. And the good life is found, morally and in other ways, when we are in harmony with God's purpose, when we are at one with God and what God intends. So that's the first thing I want to say. Second thing is this. This purpose of God is being made visible. There are places where you can see it. Now most of the time, true enough, you can't see it. The neutral observer 
standing out there observing the universe, maybe filled with all kinds of wonder and filled with all kinds of questions about where it comes from. But they cannot necessarily deduce from the creation itself that God has this purpose for it. They are left, as it were, with the questions but not the answers. But there is a place where the purpose of God has become visible in our world so that we can see it and observe it. And where is that place? That place is in the man whose name is Jesus of Nazareth because he is God's purpose made flesh, God's plan made visible. In him we see God and in him we see God's Purpose. Now that's also mentioned here uh, in these verses because in verse 29 it says those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. So Jesus is as it were the firstborn, the senior member of the family in whom we see what it's all about. And into his likeness, you and I are now being fashioned. He is the big breakthrough moment. God's cross-cultural communication from heaven to earth. God speaking to us in our language, in a way we can understand. Because although we don't understand much, we do understand other human beings, or at least most of the time we do. He is God's revelation to us in flesh and blood. That the world should learn to love God as Jesus himself loved God with heart and soul and mind and strength. And you and I are another place where this purpose becomes visible. Because as we become like Jesus, people can see in us what it's all about. That's a scary thought, isn't it? In the church, we are being made into his likeness. So that in us, people may catch a glimpse of this transcendent reality, of this great purpose. Now, it's particularly good to be here today. I've been in this building a number of times. Uh, But the first time I came here was 50 years ago this year. And it was shortly after I was converted, actually. It was just a few weeks, and uh, uh, a youth event was held here. Actually, it was in that room there, if I remember correctly. In that room is the first place where I ever gave my testimony 50 years ago. Uh, we, we came uh, to an event at which one of the chief speakers was a man called Mike Hook. I didn't know then he was destined to become one of my big friends and one of your big friends as well, I think. The blessed Mike, Mike Hook. And uh, in those days there was another building, wasn't there? There was a big building over there, an 800-seater chapel which is no longer there. Now it's the car park. And uh, I think I must have seen it in its last days. I think by then it had become unusable. That's where I first heard the expression, by the way, the days when we used to put chairs down the aisles. I remember hearing that here, that nostalgic look back to the great glory days of the past when we used, perhaps once a year, I suspect, to put chairs down the aisles for the sermons or whatever they used to hold. So this is a pleasant building, and uh, I like it from the outside, and I like it from the inside. Um, But architecture interests me, and uh, I don't know why, but in the 19th century, 
Good, simple, straightforward people like Baptists, they got into Gothic. Uh, can you imagine that? When Baptists first began, they of course met uh, in homes or in the fields or in the woods when they were being persecuted. But then in time they began to build very simple and to my mind very beautiful little meeting houses. You see the one in Crawshaw Booth, don't you, that's maintained by his English Heritage or National Trust. And I love buildings like that. But you see in the 19th century, after Catholic emancipation, Baptists also got emancipated. That means they got the vote. They were able to take part in civic society and they started to become the captains of industry. They started businesses which roared ahead. They made a lot of money and they became respectable. And once they became respectable, they began to say, we need to be like the Anglicans now. We need to have churches with spires and towers and gothic. I don't understand this. I don't see the link between Gothic and Gospel. I prefer the simple things myself. However, there is something you can say for Gothic. And that is that in every town, every village, not only of the United Kingdom but of Europe generally, there are buildings dedicated to worship. And usually they have a tower and often they have a spire. And what does it do? It points upwards. It's a symbol, a sermon in stone, that our purpose is not found here, but there. Our purpose is not found by our own manufacture, but in God's great purpose for his world. It is beyond ourselves that we are to look. And because the church is not actually the building, what we have to go on to say is that it's the people, actually, who fulfill that function, who point upwards. It's you and me, you in your community, and I in my community, a sermon not in stone but in flesh and blood. We are here to remind people by our gentle, gracious, loving witness that there is a God who has a purpose for people's lives. To bear testimony in every community. And there are people in every community. Christians are scattered all over the place. You know, I keep coming across them. On buses and trains and tubes. And there they are quietly reading their Bibles. There they are wearing a fish badge. There they are having a conversation. And what do we do? We remind people by our witness of God's claim upon their lives, of the ultimate purpose that makes sense of what we are all about. And here's another thing. This purpose which exists, which is written into the fabric of the universe, which is made visible in Jesus and made visible in the church, is overwhelmingly, massively, gobsmackingly, mind-blowingly, Generous, generous, generous. Now, if you don't believe me, believe Romans chapter 8. How about these for remarkable words? What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, 
but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Now I challenge you, sisters and brothers, to find a more generous verse anywhere in Holy Scripture or anywhere in the whole of the human enterprise. God who did not withhold his only Son but gave him up for all of us. How will he not also with him freely give us all things, everything? God is amazingly generous. He is willing to give us not only his own son, the son of his love, but in him, with him, through him to give us absolutely everything else. The meek will inherit the earth. That's God's plan. To give you everything there is. I call that generous. And most Christians know something about this. I have to say that along the way I've occasionally met some Christians who were the living contradiction of these words. You know, if they'd been baptized at all, they'd obviously been baptized in lemon juice. <laughs> Puckered up, narrow, mean, vicious. Ever met any like that? Just the odd one. Nobody like that in this church, of course. I mean, Lum is a completely liberated zone as far as these things are concerned. It's other churches, other people. That is not what being a Christian is about. Because if we're to be made in the image of his son, then we are to be as generous as is God's son, God's own self. Christians, true Christians, faithful Christians, are generous people, loving people, giving people, like their God. And this gives meaning to the whole of our lives. Now, since I retired a couple of years ago, I decided to start a movement, and I'm going to induct you into my movement today. Don't worry, it's not going to cost you anything. Um, there's no website, uh, so you don't have to log on. Uh, there's no literature. You're not, you'll never get a, a newsletter from me. But I want you to be part of my movement. And I'm, going to, I'm, I'm calling it um, Protest theism. Now you might say, well, what is protest theism? Well, protest theism is the opposite of something called protest atheism. An atheist is somebody who doesn't believe in God. A protest atheist is somebody who says, as did a number of philosophers in the 20th century, there is so much suffering in this world. There is so much pain there is so much that we find it hard to come to terms with that we cannot believe in a God who is good. And therefore, we will not believe in God at all. We will punish God by not believing in God. And we will ignore him. We will leave him out. For us, God is just not there. And I ask myself the question, how does that solve anything? 
What, what difference does that make? How does that make the pain of the world any less the pain of the world? How does that make suffering any less suffering? Does it not do actually the precise office, opposite? Doesn't it make suffering and pain and tragedy and all the terrible things we read about in the world? Does not that mean that those things actually are the last word? That there is no hope of ever justice prevailing or the right being done? Or goodness triumphing over evil. Is that not to surrender the world to death, emptiness, and sorrow? And that's where my movement comes in. Protest. Theism. Actually, I dreamt up protest theism when I was attending the funeral of a friend of mine, Dave. He may have been in college with you. Dave was a chief petty officer in the Royal Navy. He was in the Falklands conflict. He was converted. He trained for ministry at Spurgeon's College. He was at Shepherd's Push Baptist Church, doing a good job. He was about that tall. (laughs) And I loved Dave. And uh, one day, driving home from seeing his son in Plymouth pulled onto the side of the M5 motorway and died of a heart attack. And there we were at his funeral. And I loved Dave because we used to check each other out when we met. We were the same age. And when we met, we'd go through the routine. How are you doing? Are you okay? How's your health? How's your blood pressure? Uh, Are you taking sufficient quantities of red wine to keep healthy? (laughs) And then my friend died. Same age as me. You feel the pains and the challenge of mortality at that point. And I conceived in my heart a protest. This is not the way it's supposed to be. But if God does not exist, and if there is no purpose to this world, that is exactly the way things are. Everything will end in nothingness. Everything we love, everything we cherish, everything we hope for, all the people we love will perish eternally. And there will be nothing left but cosmic emptiness if there is no divine purpose. And that's one reason, there are many other reasons, but that's one reason why I believe in God. Because when I say I believe in God, it's my protest against a dying world, against death and emptiness and suffering. It's my way of saying, no, that is not the last word. That is not the final reality. The last word is the word that God speaks. And the word that God speaks is yes. And life. He who did not withhold his only son, how will he not also with him freely give us everything else. You know, we are people who do have a hope, who have a vast hope, a hope that's able to engulf and outlast and overwhelm all the pain and sorrow that we feel along the way. That's the meaning of this, you see, all the things uh, that happen. God is able to turn them to an ultimate good and work all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So I said I want to induct you into my movement. How do we do this? We have an initiation ceremony now. You say in your heart, I believe in God. 
I believe in the God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can do that now. You can say it now. And hey presto, you're part of my movement. My movement is actually called the Christian church, the Christian faith. And here's the last thing. This purpose of God for all things revealed in Christ, this overwhelmingly generous purpose of God is irresistible. It cannot finally fail. It must finally triumph. Now, when I say finally, I mean in God's time, not my time. Probably beyond my lifetime, probably beyond your lifetime. God's purpose will come to pass and will be fulfilled. And we will be part of it. But it's in God's time that this will come. It's irresistible. And that's the meaning of these wonderful, remarkable words. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? I am convinced, says Paul, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It is irresistible. Actually, there's a big theological word, which I rather like. You need to have your false teeth in for this one. It is called the indefectibility. How do you like that? The indefect... I'll be asking questions later. The indefectibility of the Christian church. The church cannot finally fail. Why? Because God is on its side. Because Jesus Christ is head of the church. Because he has risen from the dead. Because he's ascended to heaven. Because he's coming again with glory and great power. That's why it can't fail. Not because of you and me. We can fail all the time. We do fail all the time. And not every church lasts forever. Churches come and go. But the one great church of Jesus Christ cannot fail. It will finally succeed. Or, putting it differently, God will have the victory at the end of all things. And in that day, his purpose will be fulfilled and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. And all will be well. And all manner of things shall be well. So what do we do about this? Well, they say a good sermon leaves you with something to do. So at the end of a sermon, I'm supposed to say, now this is what you do about this. Well, I'm not going to do that. Well, not really. I actually don't believe in that. I believe you should leave the word of God with people and let it do its own work. But there is one thing I will say. I don't ask you to do anything, but I do ask you simply to believe these things. Because by believing them, your life will be changed. And you will be made strong. And this will do you good to have a hope and a joy and an expectation that God's purpose will come to pass. May it be so to his glory and praise. Amen.